How many of you were expecting the Clint Eastwood uh, Good, Bad, and Ugly theme song? Yeah? It might happen next week. We'll see. Hey, uh, it's good to see you guys. Thank you uh, to Dustin Krantz for uh, speaking the last couple weeks. I thought Dustin did a great job. Please show him your appreciation if you would. <laughs> Caught a series on uh, Netflix, and um, I guess I'm not going to mention the name of it. I mentioned it in the first service. If they recorded that, you can go back and hear what it was. But um, somebody said to me, maybe I shouldn't have recommend or I shouldn't have mentioned it. Anyway, um, if you haven't, uh, well, if you haven't seen the particular series, actually, I'll mention it. It was called Ozark. Anybody watch Ozark? Yeah, a bunch of you guys watched Ozark. It was good. It was, uh, 34 nominations for Emmys. Most recognized people. Uh, on the show, of course, were the, were the main actors. Jason Bateman, Laura Lenny, Julia Garner. But Amy and I happened to catch a little documentary about the making of Ozark, which was kind of fascinating. And the thing that blew us away was just how many people it took to make the show. Four seasons, I think, right? Four seasons. 476 cast members alone. Can you believe that? Then I went out on the IMDb page to see how many people were uh, on the crew. I think like it took over 700 people to bring that show to air. People whom you would have never known were involved in this thing because they weren't on camera, but it took that many people just to bring this thing to air. It's remarkable, isn't it? Just how many people it takes. And you know, the thing is that in any organization, it's kind of like this, you know, the, the people that you're most familiar with are the people that, you know, are sort of the faces or the people that you see the most, but you don't see all of the people behind the scenes who really make the organization happen. And of course, that's true here at City Church as well. I mean, you've seen me this morning, you've seen Randy, you've seen the band members, you saw Dustin, but you don't see all of the other people that are involved to make City Church happen. Like you don't see all the tech people and, and the fact that they get here really, really early in the morning to make it happen. You don't see all the volunteers in children's ministry or, or, or student ministry. You don't see the, the prayer team that comes in and prays for you every week. Like you don't see those people. And yet without those people, without all of those people, nothing that we do here could happen. Sometimes it's just the most prominent people that you're the most familiar with. Well, in a similar fashion in the Bible, there are some very prominent people that most people are familiar with, at least that have some kind of familiarity with, with Scripture. This morning, though, we're going to begin a new series from the Old Testament that's called The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. And it's a series on some of the lesser-known kings in the history of the Jewish people. In the Old Testament, there were 46 different kings who ruled over God's people. However, my guess is that most of you would be familiar with only three of them, Saul, David, and Solomon. Maybe a few others, but probably those three. What I want to do in, in this series is I want to introduce you to six of the other kings of, the, of God's people, because every one of these kings has something to teach us in their own unique way about the Lord Jesus Christ. And it, they had something to teach the people of Israel about what at that point was still their coming Messiah. If you have a Bible with you, I'd like for you to find with me 1 Kings, 1 Kings chapter 11. 1 Kings chapter 11. And while you're finding 1 Kings chapter 11, let me give you a little background information. 
For a, a portion of Israel's history, God was their king. But at some point, the people demanded that he give them a human king like the rest of the nations that surrounded them. And so God gave them a human king. Now, uh, you need to understand about these human kings that God gave them, that uh, they were more than just political figures. God intended, intended them to be spiritual leaders of the nation as well, men who observed and obeyed God's covenants and laws, who ruled over the people uh, under God's authority, and who did so with justice and with righteousness. The first king... Uh, was a man by the name of Saul. I mentioned him a little while ago. Saul didn't last long before he disobeyed God and God ripped the royal scepter from Saul's hands and he handed it to Israel's second king, the legendary King David. After David died, his son Solomon inherited the throne. And then when Solomon died, well, I'll tell you what, look at chapter 11, verse 42. Chapter 11, verse 42. Solomon reigned in Jerusalem over all Israel. Now underline, underline Jerusalem and underline the word all. We'll come back to that later. They're both important. Solomon reigned in Jerusalem over all Israel 40 years. Then he rested with his ancestors and was buried in the city of David his father. And Rehoboam his son succeeded him as king. That's the king that I want to talk to you about today. A man by the name of Rehoboam. Now, there's a lot that isn't uh, said there. The, this is the historical record of Solomon handing over the reign uh, or of Rehoboam inheriting the reign from his father, um, Solomon. But it really doesn't say anything about the psychological component of inheriting a throne from your father. To understand Rehoboam's story, you have to understand that his dad, Solomon, was sort of the original rock star king. Think Elvis... Think John Lennon, that's the kind of, that's the scale of fame that we're talking about with Solomon. I don't know if you can imagine what the pressure would be like to replace uh, someone with that kind of rock star status. Uh, how difficult it would be to establish your own identity, no matter how successful you are in your own right, you're going to always fall short of your dad. Uh, let me ask you guys something. How many of you have ever heard of the, the actor uh, Colin Hanks? A couple of you. How many of you have heard of the actor Tom Hanks? Okay. Colin Hanks is Tom Hanks' son. And he's a very successful actor in his own right, but he's never going to be as successful as his father. That must be difficult to know that you're never going to be quite as successful as your father who preceded you. When Colin Hanks, in fact, I, I got to tell you guys this, when Colin Hanks was growing up playing athletics in school, you might know that Tom Hanks played up, uh, he was in a movie called um, Forrest Gump. And some of you might not know this, but Colin Hanks, when he was in school, some of his friends would, or some of the other kids would tease him by saying, run, Forrest, run. You know, when he played athletics. Well, that's got to be very, very difficult to grow up in that kind of an environment. You can imagine that might put a chip on a kid's shoulder. Rehoboam grew up with a silver spoon, the son of a rock star. Who knows, maybe back in his junior high days, maybe the other guys made fun of him too. Maybe he felt that people looked at him and thought he didn't have the skills to be king, that he was just next in line because of his genes, not his ability to lead. 
And as we're going to see, Rehoboam wants to be his own man. He wants to have his own identity. He wants to show that he can lead. And so, as we move into chapter 12, there's more going on than just a transfer of power. The whole psychological thing going on. Rehoboam is about to begin the process of building his own legacy. And right away, there are ominous clouds hovering over his future. Look at chapter 12, verse 1, and, and then what we'll do is we'll work our way through this story, and then we'll draw out a couple of principles that we can apply to our own lives at the end. Verse 1, Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all the Israelites had gone there to make him king. Now, um, I mentioned a moment ago that you should pay attention to where Solomon, Rehoboam's father, reigned. Where was it? It was in Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the capital city of the nation of Israel. It was where Rehoboam's grandfather, David, reigned. It's where Solomon reigned. Shechem, though, was in the northern part of the nation. Why is Rehoboam going there? Well, it's because a civil war is brewing in Israel, literally between the north and the south. Israel was divided into 12 tribes. But when I say the word tribes, that makes you think uh, too primitive and too small. You need to think bigger and more complex. Think political entities, each of which had hundreds of thousands of people. And each tribe or, or entity had its own unique geography, its own unique personality, its own interests, sort of, you know, sort of similar to our 50 states. The greatest tension that always existed was between the 10 northern tribes and the two southern tribes. While Solomon was the king, because of his personality and his power, his rock star status, he was always able to hold all 12 of those tribes together. But now that Solomon's gone, the cracks in the nation's foundations are beginning to grow. And Rehoboam knows this. And so he shrewdly goes up to Shechem to get the support of the northern tribes, the northern coalition of tribes. But he's not prepared for who shows up at this meeting, and he's not prepared for the offer that the tribes are going to make him. Verse 2, when Jeroboam, son of Nebat, heard this, he was still in Egypt where he'd fled from King Solomon. He returned from Egypt. And so they sent for Jeroboam and he and the whole assembly of Israel went to Rehoboam and said to him, now before we read any further, let's just want to make sure that you understand who this Jeroboam is and why he was in Egypt. When Solomon first became the king 40 years earlier, he'd been the kind of king that God wanted him to be. He was a political leader, but he was also a spiritual leader in, in, of God's people. But one specific thing that God had warned Solomon not to do. Don't take wives from the neighboring nations. Why? Well, because they were idol worshipers. And idol worshiping cultures were always death cultures. And so God said, don't take wives from those surrounding nations because they will eventually lead your heart away. The idols and those death cultures will eventually lead your heart away from God. But what do you think happens when Solomon becomes a celebrity, a rock star king? What do you think happens? What, what usually happens to a person when they become a celebrity? It's almost never good, is it? I mean, if, like, if you paid any attention to the Johnny Depp Amber Heard trial, you, you, you kind of know what kind of terrible things happen often to a person who becomes a, a, a celebrity. The problem with being a celebrity is that no one wants to tell you no because if they do, they'll be off the gravy train. 
So everyone does whatever it is that you want them to do. Solomon ends up making any celebrity that you know today look like a choir boy. He had 700 wives and 300 concubines. So God confronts Solomon and he says, because you've done what I told you never to do, when you die, I'm going to make a political rival out of a guy by the name of, guess who? Jeroboam. He says, I'm going to make him king over the northern tribes when you die, and I'll leave your son Rehoboam with the two southern tribes only. And your sin has cost your son the whole nation. Now, most rich, spoiled celebrities would respond to that very well, don't you think? No. Solomon gets jealous. How do you get rid of a political rival back then? Well, you don't sneak around and find dirt and sneak it to the press. That's not how you did it back then. You buried them. Literally, you killed them. Which is why Jeroboam had fled to Egypt to find political asylum there. He was running for his life from Solomon. But now he's back. Now that he knows that Solomon is dead, he's back. And he's serving as the political representative for the northern coalition. And here's the offer that Jeroboam and the whole northern political coalition make to Rehoboam. Here's the offer. It says, your father put a heavy yoke on us, but now lighten the harsh labor and the heavy yoke he put on us, and we, we will serve you. Uh, Rock star kings don't come cheap. Takes a lot of money to sustain a rock star king's lifestyle. Private jets, multiple homes, servants, security, lavish parties, all the rest. Solomon did the nation a whole lot of good, but his incredible wealth and his fame came at a price. And see if this sounds familiar to you. Over the course of his reign, Solomon slowly took power away from the 12 independent tribes and consolidated it and centralized it in the federal government, if you will, in Jerusalem. And then he taxed the living daylights out of the people to support his government. Sound familiar? Sound familiar? And the thing is that Solomon had been king so long and had accumulated so much power and he had such rock star status that no one could stop him even though the people didn't like it. It's amazing, isn't it? I mean, like we like to think of ourselves as so much more sophisticated than people in the Bible, but we're still arguing about the same things today, aren't we? Taxes and the size of government and the sovereignty of the 50 individual states versus the powers of the federal government. Well, now that Solomon's dead, the northern tribes see their opportunity, and so they make a political offer, as I said, to Rehoboam. And the political offer is simply this. Reduce the workload, give us back our independence, lower our taxes, and you'll have our political support. We'll vote for you. I mean, like they didn't really vote, but you know, we'll support you. There will be no civil war. One nation all supporting you, not divided. We'll peacefully serve you. That's the offer. What would you have said? Rehoboam responds in verse 5. He answered, go away for three days and then come back to me. So the people went away. Now, I want you to watch what happens uh, and I want you to watch very carefully because it's kind of subtle. Watch this. Then King Rehoboam uh, consulted the elders who had served his father Solomon during his lifetime. How would you, notice the question, how would you advise me to answer these people, he asked. They replied, if today you will be a servant to these people and serve them and give them a favorable answer, they will always be your servants. 
Now it sounds really good that Solomon has asked them this question. It kind of sounds like a wise leader who's going to consult with the elders uh, of, the, uh, of the nation, his father's advisors, and he's going to get their counsel and advice. But watch this. Rehoboam rejected the advice the elders gave him. See, uh, don't get fooled by this show. Rehoboam wants us to think that he's just being a good leader. He's just consulting with his father's advisors before he makes a decision. But that's not what happened. Did you see it? See, here's the thing. Rehoboam has already made his mind up. How can you reject your father's advisors if you only have heard one option? Like, 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 serve these people and lower the taxes, do what they ask, and it'll be fine. He rejects them right out, outright. How can he do that? He's only heard one option. The answer is, he already knows what he's going to do. And he just needs somebody to tell him what he wants to hear. And so, where does he go? Where does he go? He goes to the people that are going to tell him what he wants to hear. Where do celebrities go when they want to be told what they want to hear? They go to their posse. And that's where Solomon goes. He goes to his posse. The guys whom he'd grown up with. He knows what he wants to do. He knows he wants to make a statement. He wants to show he's not a silver spoon born on third base, pushover. He's not intimidated by Jeremiah Boehm. He wants to make a mistake, or excuse me, he wants to make a statement. And so he turns to the people that he knows will tell him what he wants to hear, verse 6. But Rehoboam rejected the advice the elders gave him and consulted the young men who had grown up with him and were serving him. They were part of the payroll, right? They're on the payroll. There's posse. He asked them, what is your advice? And then notice how he kind of just subtly changes the question. How should we, how should we answer these people who say to me, Lighten the yoke your father put on us. How should we answer these people? I don't know. Do you notice this? If he asked the elders, how would you advise me? Now he says, how, sh how should we answer these people? It's such a cunning and manipulative little move. Perhaps one that even he even might have thought would give him plausible deniability if things go south. Now what do you think is, how, what do you think these guys say? What do you think his posse says? What do you think they say? Will any of them speak truth to power? That's the question. Will they speak truth to power? The young man who had grown up with him replied, Tell these people who have said to you, Your father put a heavy yoke on us, make our yoke lighter. Tell them, My little finger is thicker than my father's waist. My father laid on you a heavy yoke, I will make it even heavier. My father scourged you with whips, I will scourge you with scorpion. What are they telling him? What he wants to hear. And so Rehoboam gathers everyone together after the three-day waiting period. He says in verse 13, the text says in verse 13, the king answered the people harshly, rejecting the advice given him by the elders. He followed the advice of the young men and said, my father made your yoke heavy, I'll make it even heavier. My father scourged you with whips, I'll scourge you with scorpions. Exactly what the young men told him to do. And how do you think that goes over? So the king did not listen to the people for this turn of events was from the Lord to fulfill the word that the Lord had spoken to Jeroboam, son of Nebat, through Ahijah the Shilonite. 
When all Israel saw that the king refused to listen to them, they answered the king, What share do we have in David? What part in Jesse's son? In other words, in other words we, don't, we don't want to have anything to do with the southern tribes. Says, they, they say, To your tents, O Israel. In other words, to the northern tribes. Look after your own house, O David. In other words, you guys in the south, look after your own stuff. We're separated now. This is a proclamation of civil war. And from this point on, the once united and powerful kingdom of Israel is now divided. Tribes from the north and the tribes from the south split into two nations. The north will retain the name Israel. The south will take the name Judah. And they will be weakened by division. They will each become more vulnerable to foreign powers. They will each be tempted to make alliances with surrounding nations and as a result, they'll become exposed increasingly to the idolatry of the surrounding nations. And the divisions between the two will only intensify until the point comes that they're both conquered by more powerful nations and carried away into exile and captivity. Now here's the question. What are we to make of this story? How do we... Uh, how do we apply this story? What do we do with it? What significance does it have to our lives? Well, here's an obvious takeaway from Rehoboam's story. And I'm going to call this a formula for blowing up your life. Here it is. Here's a formula for blowing up your life. Shut people out who tell you the truth and listen only to people who tell you what you want to hear. It's a formula for disaster. Shut people out who tell you the truth and listen only to people who tell you what you want to hear. See, if you don't yet, you will soon sense in your life uh, an acute need for wisdom. You will take a job that you never should have taken. You'll hire somebody you never should have hired. You'll date somebody you never should have dated. Maybe marry someone you never should have married. There's some Old Testament scholar who said that the definition of wisdom is competence with regard to life's realities. Why does life blow up when you date the wrong person, marry the wrong person? Well, you never should have gotten involved. Why does it blow up when you take the wrong job? You never should have taken the job. You overestimated this. You underestimated that. You didn't understand this. Why does your life blow up? Well, because you made a choice that wasn't competent with regard to life's realities. And here's how this often goes. Here's why we sometimes make these kinds of choices that blow up our lives. Here's how it goes. I've done this, you've done this, we've all done it. You know what you want. You have a choice to make, but you know what you want. And suddenly, because you know what you want, you start seeing signs all over the place that tell you that what you want is the right decision. You know, I don't know, it could be anything. It could be a street sign. It could be a phone call you get from somebody, a song you listen to. And then, when you start seeing those signs, you start shutting out anyone that tells you that you're making a mistake. You know what this is called? I'll tell you what some people call it. Some people call it faith. Here's what it's called. It's called confirmation bias. That's what it's called. It's called confirmation bias. And why is this such a dangerous way to make decisions? Why is it such a formula for, for disaster? Here it is. Here's why. 
because you have a limitless capacity for self-deception. You have a limitless capacity uh, for self-deception. And I think we can see it in this passage. Pastor and author Tim Keller once wrote this. He said, self-deception is not the worst thing you can do, but it is the means by which we do the very worst things. The sin that is most distorting your life right now is the one you can't see. And I might add to that, the one that you refuse to see. We don't self-deceive about everything. We just self-deceive about the things that are closest to our identity. Look at Rehoboam. He's lived in the shadow of his rock star father all of his life. He's bound and determined to prove himself, to be his own man. He's not going to live in his father's shadow. He won't be pushed around by Jeroboam or anyone else for that matter. Being king, Rehoboam, that's his identity. And as a result, he can't see He can't see what we can see so clearly. The way he's made his mind up before he even asks for counsel. The way he manipulates his preferred advisors who won't speak truth to power because he can't be told he's wrong. Understand, please understand, it is no coincidence that those guys are in his posse. They're there in his posse precisely because they won't contradict him, won't tell him the truth, won't say no, won't tell him he's wrong because to quote another actor today, He can't handle the truth, Jack Nicholson once said. He can't see what we can see. His lust for power, his greed. He's gotten used to a rock star son's lifestyle and taking in fewer taxes will have to cut into that lifestyle. He's not going to do that. He can't see his massive insecurity. And because of that, he's a time bomb set to blow up the powder keg that Israel already is. And... The thing is, your capacity for self-deception and my capacity for self-deception makes us walking time bombs too. Set to blow up our lives, our marriages, our families, our friendships, and, and more. Because of our limitless capacity for self-deception. Some of you wonder... Why can't my mother see how controlling she is? It's because being a good mother with good kids is how she sees herself. It's her identity. She can't tell herself the truth that she would rather control her kids than love them. Some of you wonder, why can't my husband just admit he's wrong? Listen, that's a genetic thing with men, so I can't explain everything. But I will say this, that being right, being the man with the answers, uh, that's part of our identity. And it's hard for us to admit that we wouldn't know who we were if we said, I don't know. We have a limitless capacity for self-deception. I'll tell you a couple places I see this play itself out um, very, very frequently. And I'm going to make enemies uh, when I tell you both of these. It would just be so much easier if I would just move on. But I'm going to tell you anyway. Uh, The first is with men who are very successful 
at what they do because they're very legit, they're, they're, like they're legitimately good at what they do. But here's what ends up happening. Because they're good at what they do, they extrapolate and assume that they're good at everything and that they know everything. And so no one can tell them anything. Everybody has to endure the fact that they've got an opinion about everything and they're right about everything. And the problem is that eventually they isolate themselves. People don't want to be around a blovi bloviating know-it-all all the time. And so they end up isolating themselves. They don't realize that they're good at one thing. And they know a lot about one thing, but they don't know about everything. And it becomes very isolating. And sometimes, sometimes it becomes such an issue that it blows up families, blows up relationships, blows up companies even. That's, that's one place I see it. Here's another place I see it. It's in the people that you marry. Um, here's how it goes. You start dating somebody, and you start, you start dating this person. You go out on a few dates, and you're kind of like, oh, man, he's wonderful. He's not. And he thinks you're wonderful. You're not. If there was any sanity in our country, if we were a, a, a more well-aware, uh, more self-aware country, early on in dating, we would just ask the question, and how are you crazy? Because it's not a question of if people are crazy. It's a matter of fact. They are crazy. The question is, do they know how they're crazy? And if they don't know, you don't want to be around them. You see, in our limitless capacity for self-deception, we also tell ourselves, because we're single, we tell ourselves, I'm astoundingly easy to live with. You're not. And she tells herself, you know, I'm astoundingly easily to live with, and she's not. But one of the things that you don't realize about yourself is that you're not looking for someone, you think you're looking for someone to be happy with for the rest of your life, but you know what? You're not. You know what you're looking for? You're looking for somebody familiar who will recreate in this relationship what you grew up with, no matter how terribly dysfunctional that was. That is familiar. And so you're looking for someone familiar, which may very well get in the way of your happiness. And then here's how it goes. You date for a little bit. Somewhere along the lines, it becomes physical. You begin to become sexual. Uh, once that happens, you begin to rationalize everything about the other person. It's so much easier to sleep with somebody than it is to do the hard work of building emotional intimacy. So when you sleep with people, your emotions become involved, and then you begin to rationalize all the stuff you see in them that you really don't like. And then... At some point, you move in with them, and you think to yourself, what a wise move this is. We're going to move in with each other. We will find out if we're compatible. You're not. You're not because you're both crazy. There, that's compatibility. Marriage isn't ultimately about compatibility. It's about commitment, ultimately. It's about commitment. But in our limitless capacity for self-deception, we fool ourselves, and we end up often, not always, but often, making terrible decisions about who we should spend the rest of our lives with. 
And it often blows up, doesn't it? Not always, not always, and not always because of you. Sometimes it's the other person, but... We have this limitless capacity for self-deception. And by definition, the only way you will ever discover the self-deception is if you let someone who isn't you tell you the truth. But we don't do that. We get into this relationship and we're not going to let anybody. I'm going I'm I'm to eliminate anybody who tells me, hey, I think you need to think about this a little bit more. I don't think she's everything you think she is. I don't think he's everything you think he is. I think you need to think about this a little more. Only way you'll ever discover your self-deception is if you let someone who isn't you tell you the truth. And by let, I don't really mean let. I mean cultivate the kind of relationship in which the people who love you the most have the freedom to speak truth to you gently, lovingly, for sure, but truthfully, and without fear of retribution. It's the only way. You have a limitless capacity for self-deception. I have a limitless capacity for self-deception. We can justify and rationalize anything. Do you believe that about yourself? Because it's true. Uh, I've said it this way before. You should doubt yourself more. Doubt your motives. Doubt your perspective. Because you have a limitless capacity for self-deception. Well, there's something else that we want to see in this passage. I said earlier that all of the kings, including the bad ones, were there to teach Israel about their coming Messiah. Rehoboam is a study in contrast with the one who would become the king of kings, the ultimate king of kings. In order to prove himself, Rehoboam chooses fear and intimidation as his ruling strategy. But the ultimate king will not rule by intimidation. In fact, the one with all the power in the universe will deny his own self-interest and humble himself for his people, becoming sin and dying on a cross for them. And I want you to understand this, that the only way to come to terms with the fact that you are self-deceptive is to come to terms with the grace of God shown to you in Christ Jesus' death on the cross. If you grasp the grace of God, you can handle hearing the truth that you are controlling, that you tend to be a know-it-all, that you are self-deceiving. Why? Because Christ's death on the cross means that you don't have to prove yourself anymore. You don't have to build an identity because he's given you an identity upon which you can never improve. And that identity is this. You are the beloved of God. And no matter how good you are, no matter what mistakes you make, and no matter whether you're successful or whether you're a failure or anything else in the world, you will always and forever be the beloved of the God who holds the universe together, who created it and sustains it. You will always be his beloved. Christ has paid the price so that God can be delighted in you. And if you can come to terms with that, that truth will liberate you. It will set you free of having to deny your limitless capacity for self-deception. bow with me for prayer? Let's pray. Sometimes truth stings. We don't want to hear it. We would rather live with self-deception, I think, sometimes. 
Nobody wants to hear that they are a self-deceiving person. But Lord Jesus Christ, in your love and grace and mercy, you speak to us about these kinds of things. You penetrate the very depths of our lives, souls, hearts, and you tell us that we're sinners. The good news is, Lord, that you don't just tell us that, but that you also tell us that we're more loved than we could possibly, possibly imagine. And we thank you for the fact that you did not choose to rule by fear and intimidation, but instead in humility and in weakness. And as a result, sacrificed your life for our sake. For those that are here this morning that may never have understood this, they've never come to a place where they've understood that you died on the cross for their sins and that that's the only way to eternal life. I pray that perhaps today would be the day that they would acknowledge in the privacy of their seat, yes, I'm a sinner. And Lord Jesus Christ, I believe. I want you to be my Savior. And then for those who have believed in Christ, Lord, almost to live in the grace that you have demonstrated to us. Let that truth set us free. Lord, we thank you for what you've done on our behalf. And it is in your name that we pray and worship. Amen. Amen.